abstain from the passions of the flesh, wage war against your soul. John 17, Jesus is, is about to be crucified. He's praying with his disciples. And what he says when he's praying in verse 16, he says, They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So we as believers have been called out as God's people in a foreign land. Our Babylon, our foreign land is this world, the physical world.
good sports with kids are popular. So you want your kids to interact with their kids. So you're trying to fit into that group. It can even look like super spiritual people. I want to I want to fit in with the super spiritual folks. So I'm gonna I'm gonna work my hardest to be with them. Even hipsters with their like hidden, just unbelievable desire to to be different from the world, still long to be accepted by other hipsters. It's an undeniable fact that we are constantly trying to get into these different crowds. But the sad fact is that no matter how accepted we feel by these different crowds, it will never be enough to satisfy. There will always be a better group. There will always be more money. There will always be a better dream to be a part of. The desire will never fulfill us. Why? Because we're trying to fill an eternal gaping hole that's meant to be filled by God with temporal passing away objects. C.S. Lewis once said, we find ourselves with the desire that nothing in this world can satisfy the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. All right, second, our life in exile. So in verse 10, God is saying, you're going to live here for 70 years, which basically means if you are in exile right now, you're going to die in exile. And, and as you can imagine, if somebody said, hey, you're going to die in exile, you don't want to give up. And so what happened is, we see this in verses 8 and 9, we see these, these false prophets come along. They start telling the Israelites, don't worry, you know, this Jeremiah guy, he's telling you you're going to be here for a long time. He's wrong, you're going to go home in just a matter of time before you go home. So don't mingle, don't mix, don't let the Babylonians contaminate you. You're better than them, um, you're more spiritual than them, you know, you're on God's side. So just don't worry about it, don't mingle, mix, you're going home soon. Um, and more, moreover, I'm sure the Babylonians, they were meant what they wanted to do. It's not like they were, they weren't, they didn't need the false prophets to come and tell them. This thing, it was just simply tickling their ears. However, this is not what God said, because this is what this passage is saying. So these false prophets are coming and saying this, and now finally here, after no hope, no hope, lies from the false prophets and no hope, God finally comes, he says, no, this is how you are to live your life in exile. And so God's response, verses 5 through 9, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives, have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not increase, but seek the welfare of the city where I sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on his behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and diviners who are among you deceive you, do not listen to the dream they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I do not send them, declares the Lord. God is saying, You're here in exile, and I have you here for a reason. Do not make a waste of by refusing contact with the Babylonians. Instead, invest in the community I have. This isn't some touch and go contact that God's that God's ordaining here or simply you know, just pray for them. I mean, he does, he is commanding us to pray for them. But he's saying that's not all, that's not all the responsibility you have. God is commanding them to literally unite their lives and their families' lives to the welfare of the community that they are in. God is saying, despite the fact that this is not your home, I recognize this is not your home, but despite that. Settle down. So what does that mean for us? It means the exact same thing it means for the Israelites. Now, does this mean that everyone who lives out here in, in I don't really know all the areas of this place of Jefferson or River Ridge or Elmwood or wherever you may live, does it mean that you're supposed to just pack up and move downtown and see Robbie Shake and say, oh, this guy isn't it? Um, does it mean you're supposed to just pack up and move downtown? I mean, maybe. It could be. Um, but I don't think that's primarily what he's saying. Because here's the deal. I recognize that God has not called everyone in this room to full-time vocational ministry. And I, I praise God 
and he's not calling everyone of you the full-time vocational ministry, one, because it's going to be totally new. But um, <laughs> Timothy Keller, a pastor in New York, says, the cities do not need more pastors, they need more Christians. And, and what Keller is trying to get at here, and what I believe that this text is trying to say, is the majority, if not all of you, are going to stay in this area, you're going to buy homes, you're going to build homes, uh, your kids are going to go to school, they're going to play sports, they're going to join clubs, um, with all kinds of other people. With, essentially, you're going to settle down, you're going to plant your roots, in, roots and you're going to build your lives. And what this place needs, what New Orleans needs, is people going into their jobs, going into their schools, going into the community activities that you're already investing in, um, the coffee shops, the groups, grocery stores, because, I mean, the verse says gardening, but honestly, I don't think any of you are gardening. Maybe you are. And in that case, congratulations, you're really fulfilling this text. But at least the grocery stores and everything else can invest your time and share the love of Christ. But the number one thing that keeps us from seeking the welfare of the city and the community around us is that so often we are seeking our own welfare. We don't want to enter into any kind of conversation or relationship or, in, or invite anyone who is different than us or poor or into our homes because it, it's not going to help us in any way. Um, we don't and, and what Jeremiah is saying is if, that, if, if you truly wanted what is best for you, you would want what is best for the community and the city around you. What is best for the city and what is best for the community around you is that Jesus' name would be magnified through you going into these in places of influence that you already have and sharing the gospel. Interesting, interestingly, when we see this verse here, it says, seek the welfare of the city. And other translations may say peace. And the word here, the Hebrew word, is shalom. Now, shalom means peace, but it doesn't just necessarily mean the absence of conflict. Adam pointed out to me last week that Israel, that the Hebrews didn't have a word for total no conflict because they were constantly in conflict. So what the word shalom is meaning is not the absence of conflict, but the ability to have tranquility and prosper in the midst of conflict. And so when it's saying seek the shalom, this means to restitch thing, things back to God's design. It's seeking this tranquility and this ability to thrive in exile. And notice here that seek is an action verb. It means doing something. It means working. The Puritans, I mentioned earlier, um, believed that the Church of England was corrupted by selfish leaders and petty arguments. So they left America, I mean, they left the, they left England to come to reform the world by creating this community that was just believers and devoted to God's word. Um, and they thought they could do that by totally separating themselves from the world. Um, and in 1630, on a boat headed for the New World, John Winthrop, Winthrop preached a extremely famous sermon titled The Model of Christian Charity. He preached this on Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16. And Jesus, and, and this is in the Sermon on the Mount, if you want to turn it again. And I think what Jesus is saying is he's, he's not saying anything contrary to this passage because John Winthrop is saying, separate yourself through these verses. But I believe that when we look at this, the Sermon on the Mount is primarily about with its, its vast array of teachings, it's, it's at its core saying, this is how you should conduct yourselves here on earth. This is how my disciples are to live. And so I think Jesus is, is expositing Jeremiah 29, and he does this with two examples. First, salt. Um, verse, let me read the verses. So verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under your people's my family loves salt. Um, I know that Jessica was in here. She can attest to this, that we are constantly salting food before we have even tasted it. It drives me crazy. It drives my sister crazy. 
preserved it. So the reason something's preserved in a bin is that they didn't have these freezers that we have now that we can keep meat from spoiling. So what they would do is they would take the salt and they would rub it into the meat. And the reason they would rub it into the meat is it would withdraw all the water out of the meat. And bacteria, just like every other organism, requires – I'm not a biologist, I've never brought this up. I don't know anything about science. But it's, it draws all the water out because water is a requirement for all living organisms to survive. And so by taking the water out, you're taking out the necessary environment that the bacteria needs to store the meat. And so when Jesus calls us salt, he's trying to say in the midst of this decaying world, Christians are to be in a preservative. It's our duty to combat the moral decay of the world. So how do we combat this moral decay? Well, first, you can't combat moral decay if you're contributing to moral decay. So first off, we must watch our lives and we must purge our lives of the sins that are constantly plaguing us. And second, we must fight for justice. Um, there's so many different ways. That we so simply here in the city, education is bothering. Um, we've been having a war of human trafficking, um, systematic oppression, uh, poor, hungry, homeless. There's so many different ways. And, and I've been blessed. I'm talking to Adam just before the service that this church is already doing this in large part. Like Operation Christmas Child that y'all did recently, um, giving money to Faith Movers Church, which is a church plant on the other side of the city in a much different community that we are in. Um, and then there's something else. Oh, and then the food drive, which y'all get to pick up food downtown. And I've participated in this war with homeless ministry that you guys are doing. So you guys are already doing this fighting for justice. And, and I believe that that's what Jesus is commanding us. And I believe that's what Jeremiah 29 is telling us to do. That this is how we are to combat the moral decay of the world. And the reason we have to care so much about justice is because our God cares so much about justice that he sent his son to die on the cross to fulfill the just requirement of the law. Justice is not simply something that we should just pay lip service to. Justice should be a primary part of our lives. Where I grew up, people were terrified of New Orleans. I mean, I don't know if Adam's ever told you guys this, but it's like anytime somebody's like, hey, we're going out to New Orleans for the weekend, they're like, oh, bless your heart, you'll be safe now. You know, it's people were just scared to death of New Orleans. And, and don't get me wrong, I, I think that you know, it was largely misplaced. But the idea that they're getting at is that New Orleans suffers from a lot of problems. I mean, one quarter of those who live in New Orleans live in poverty. 37% of those under 18 live in poverty, and 45% of children below the age of five live in poverty. And this is not simply just, just the city of New Orleans. This is the New Orleans metro area that I'm giving statistics from. So finding our welfare in the city, in our welfare in the city means that we take these problems as our own. These problems are not simply problems that New Orleans is suffering from. These are problems that we as a church of Christians are also suffering from. And it is our duty to combat these problems. And then second, Jesus follows the light. So verse 14, you are the light of the world. The city set on the hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light or bring sand and put it under a basket, but only stand and give and give light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your, see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. It is impossible to hide light. You can try and cover it up. That's what this verse is telling us. But light will always, always burst through in Christ's here is telling us that this is us as exiles. We are the light of the world, and the light that is in us is Christ shining through us to display our light does not mean this arrogant parading before the world of our good works, of our own holiness, but is the displaying of Christ's holiness through us. When Jeremiah says movements in cities mingle, mix, invest, it means working in our jobs, our 
displays that we have hope in something more than the paychecks that we're going to get. It means displaying that we have hope in Christ's love who has redeemed us. And the thing is, you guys are already doing 90% of this because you, you have a house. You're, you're already in the community. Your kids go to school. You're already doing the majority of the work that Jeremiah and Jesus are commanding us to do here because you're already invested in the community. And so the other 2% that we're being commanded to do here is to open up our mouths and share the gospel and invite people to church, to invite our family and our coworkers and our neighbors. And I assure you, if your life is devoted to Christ, then it won't be hard to hide this life. This life will find a way to burst through. And also, Jeremiah, going back to Jeremiah 29, um, we are commanded to pray for this right. Yeah, we're commanded to pray. So, verse 7. But seek you over the city where I sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on his behalf. Anytime someone says just pray for something, honestly, sometimes it feels like my natural inclination is to just roll my hands. It's just like, oh, of course, you know, just pray. You know, well, big, big deal there, you know. Especially in our pain, we want to say that. So if that's you, I get it, I understand it, I feel it. Sometimes it seems like such a ridiculous suggestion. I, I, my natural thing is like, no, I want to do something. I want to do something about the problem. But if we're truly to believe that when we pray, we're coming into contact with a sovereign God, an all-powerful and all-knowing God, then we're coming into contact with a person who can actually do something. About the problem. Christian, you are not seeking the welfare of the city if you're not going before God and pleading on its behalf. Tim Keller was asking an interview again with training Tim Keller. Um, if he has any regrets about his ministry, and by all accounts, this man's ministry did extremely successful. He planted a church in downtown Manhattan in New York City. Um, it has grown to just thousands and thousands of people. He's written numerous books. He speaks at conferences all the time. And the one regret he said he had about his ministry is that he didn't. Enough. You see, not praying for the welfare of the city would be like if in our children's area we had a renowned doctor, just the best doctor in the whole world, and somebody had a heart attack in there. And somebody gets up to go get him, we're like, hold on, don't go get him, we're going to handle it ourselves. We got this. We would be refusing to go get the one person who could actually do something to save the city. New Orleans, and Alcoa, River Ridge, all the different areas that I don't know. Whatever community you live in, it will not change until you go before God with your petition. And so finally, really quick, um, our hope in exile. I'm going to read verses 10 through 12. For thus says the Lord, with 70 years of completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, because the Lord plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me. I will hear you. So there's two types of hope in exile. First, hope in Christ's death. You see, you can work for the welfare of the city and not your own welfare if you trust that God has your welfare taken care of already. Matthew 6, verse 30, um, 1 through 33. So again, returning to the Sermon on the Mount, says, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Fundamental truth, you are not qualified to take care of your own welfare. If you, if you try to take care of your own welfare, it will only cause you anxiety and stress, and you will turn into a selfish and bitter person 
never donated time, never donated money. And he looks at other people around him and wondering why they aren't doing more for you, considering your needs more than they do. We are not qualified to worry about our own welfare. So God says, just don't try to worry about your own welfare. If you concern yourself with your own welfare, you will never serve the kingdom of God in the way that God has uniquely called each and every one of us to serve God. If you need proof that God is more concerned for your welfare, more able to accomplish your welfare, and has already achieved your welfare, then look no further than the life of Christ. You see, Jesus, before coming to earth, existed in eternity past in, in this perfect Trinitarian relationship. He, he, but he came down to earth. He, instead of separating himself, he formed relationships with the vile, the sick, the poor, and desperate. He was in constant contact with sinners. Those who completely different than him, and he saw the welfare uh, of this world, and ultimately he accomplished it through his death on the cross. First Peter 3, uh, 1 Peter 5 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are guarded through the faith of salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Christ has freed us from the burden of worry to a far more glorious inheritance. He did not seek his own welfare. Instead, he was trushed, crushed for our transgressions so that he may give us the future. And open through his death, death is transformed for us. This verse is not simply pointing towards a glorious future welfare. It's also pointing towards our hope now that is achieved through the resurrection. So as uh, he rose again in a perfect body that will never decay and won't grow weary, he will give us a body that will never decay or grow weary. So when our Christ is going to return, and he will rescue us from our exile. 
this is our future and our hope. This verse is so often interpreted to mean that Christ is, is going to give us wealth and good things in this life, but even but even the greatest treasure on earth is not qualified as garbage and compared to the glorious treasure that He has prepared for us in the He will return in these broken systems, these injustices, these problems, our personal problems, not just societal problems, will be restored to God's original design. However, this hope, this glorious hope, can only be hope for you if you have your hope in God. If our hope lies in anything else, this, this is not hope, this is despair, because the return and restoration of Christ does not mean liberation, it means condemnation. So brothers and sisters, seek the welfare of the city and find your own welfare in the death of Christ and following the example of Christ. So I'm going to pray, finish up, and when I get done praying, I'm going to all down to come partake of the Lord's Supper and also to play the Lord's Father, I thank you for this day, God, and pray that we gather as believers in the community of believers, God, and just lift up the name and the reading and proclamation of the Word, Father. I pray that each and every one of us will be here with the bigger future, God, and we can view that. It demonstrates us that you care about so, so much. You care about ourselves more than we can possibly care about ourselves. That we would devote our lives from here on to the welfare of the city and to seek your name. Thank you, Father, for the Lord, my friends. It's your name, my friend.